Now please have your Bibles open again at Acts chapter 16, verse 16. I was reading an article uh, last week about uh, some what they call surprising addictions, things to which you can be addicted without even knowing uh, that you are. And uh, here was a list, uh, internet surfing, uh, it's maybe not so surprising, but they were saying that those who are addicted to the internet have changes going on in their brains which are similar to the changes that occur in people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, falling in love, seemingly for some people is an addiction because again the euphoric feeling when that happens triggers off a desire to experience the same again when the falling in love euphoria has faded away. Uh, there are the rest of them. Lip balm seemingly contains chemicals which can be addictive, so ladies, look out. Uh, sun tanning, tattooing, video games, sugar, music, and unsurprisingly, shopping can all be addictive. Now, the significance of that, I think, is that there are things which will imprison people and they don't actually realise it. And the, the one thing which isn't mentioned on this list, but the Bible declares to us is imprisoning, is sin, is rebellion against God. Jesus said that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he was addressing at the time religious people who were quite indignant that Jesus was offering freedom to them. He said, you may think that you are free, but in fact, if you're sinning, you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to the, the habits, the patterns that sin establishes in your life. But he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so, the gospel is the key to true freedom for everyone. Whether people realize it or not, they are enslaved, they are in bondage to sin. They will eventually face the penalty of their sin and only the Lord Jesus Christ, whose freedom is declared in the gospel, can set them free. And there's a, a beautiful picture right at the heart of the, the passage that uh, we're going to be looking at, which for me encapsulates the, the gospel uh, it's the picture of a shattered jail. Uh, an earthquake has come and has ripped the jail apart. The doors of the jail are, are thrown wide open. There are broken chains. People who have been in bondage are freed. This, uh, the word tells us, is what the good news of Jesus does for people. It sets the prisoner free. Now, with these thoughts uh, in our minds, let's... Uh, Recap a little bit on the story. The Apostle Paul and his three companions have come to Europe. Uh, they've come to Philippi, which was a Roman colony, i.e. it had been settled by ex-military from the Roman army. Uh, they've come to meet with a group of uh, ladies who were meeting for prayer outside the city. Lydia is the first convert. Lydia, the businesswoman. Uh, we're told that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message that Paul shared. She found it literally very attractive. She was attracted to the gospel. She found it beautiful. 
And now uh, we're going to find that the, the subsequent converts in this Roman colony are very different from Lydia, the businesswoman. Uh, they'll include uh, a street girl, whose name we're not told, and a, a jailer, uh, a middle-class uh, minor civil servant uh, who finds release through the gospel. So let's look first of all at the, the slave girl. We're told that uh, there was a girl who was possessed by an evil spirit and she was used uh, by the spirit as a channel and she was, if you like, a clairvoyant. She was able to tell fortunes for people and her owners were exploiting her for their own advantage. Now, if we were to think in, in uh, contemporary terms, I suppose the closest thing uh, we might think of would be a prostitute, a girl on the street uh, exploited by her pimp. Uh, somebody who is at the very bottom of the pile. And in losing her freedom, she had also lost her identity. We're not told her name. And probably, if people had pointed her out, her name wouldn't have been used. She would simply have been the, the girl who tells fortune, tell, the, the girl who tells people's fortunes. That's what she did. That's who she was. Uh, and sadly, sin uh, defaces people, robs them of the, the, the beauty of the image of God, and loses their identity so that instead of owning the glorious identity that God has given us, uh, we label ourselves by the sin that is most prominent in our lives. And so you find people uh, self-labeling themselves as alcoholics or addicts or gay. It's the first thing that people will tell you about themselves. The most significant thing about them. But this girl was following Paul and his companions and she was declaring what seemed to be uh, the truth. What was in fact the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now you wonder, what, what was the problem in that? Uh, Paul seems to be troubled by that and he eventually casts out the demons so that she no longer uh, shouts after them uh, this truth. The problem was that although it was true, it was coming from uh, an evil source. It was inspired by this demon, this evil spirit. And sooner or later, uh, the lips of the girl who was declaring the truth about Paul and his companions would be used to defame the same gospel. And Paul was aware that one of the devil's ploys, if he doesn't oppose the gospel head on, is to try and form a subtle alliance with people uh, and to undermine uh, through compromise the truth of the gospel. And so Paul casts out the evil spirit and this uh, has the immediate effect of causing her owners to be furious. Uh, they should have been glad that she's been delivered but in fact they're, they're really mad because they've lost their source of income. It shows them up for what they were. They were exploiting her. They were concerned only for what she could give them. Now that, of course, is par for the course, isn't it? Um, some of you might be able to recall a time when, before you became a Christian, when the people that you hung out with were really only concerned for what you could 
provide for them. You were a drinking companion. You were someone who laughed at their dirty jokes or was willing to go where they wanted to go. And when you followed Christ and no longer did these things, they dropped you like a a red-hot brick. They had no time for you. Same with these owners. They were simply exploiting the girl when she could no longer provide uh, the finance for them. Uh, They were furious. The girl was freed, though. We're not actually told definitively that she became a Christian. We're not told that uh, she believed and was baptized. But the inference is that she was, because her story is sandwiched between the story of Lydia and the jailer. I think it's fair to assume that the girl uh, was not only delivered of her demon, but came to trust in Christ. But the practical outcome was that the owners of the slave girl uh, stir up the crowd and Paul and Silas are dragged uh, into the marketplace and have to face the authorities. Now these men are quite smart. They know that Philippi is fiercely proud of its Roman heritage. Uh, It's been founded by former soldiers in the Roman army. Uh, Its laws are patterned on Rome. And if they're going to get the magistrates on side, the best way of doing that is to accuse Paul and Silas of introducing un-Roman practices. And that's what they do. And the magistrates are taken in and they order Paul and Silas to be flogged and then to be thrown into prison. So that takes place. And then enter the next principal actor in the, the drama, the Philippian Jailer. What do we know about this Philippian jailer? Well, uh, I think it's very probable that he himself would have been ex-military. It fits the bill. That's what uh, most of the population were in any case. But he would have been an ideal person, if he was a former soldier, to fulfill the role of jailer. Uh, He was used to... uh, making people secure as prisoners. He was used to the discipline uh, involved in this. Well, very highly likely that he was a former soldier. And now uh, he's he's left the army, maybe in his late 40s, early 50s, that kind of age. And he's now serving the government. He's a a minor civil servant, if you like. He's a, a middle class individual. The slave girl was at the bottom of the heap and Lydia was way at the top. And this man is somewhere in between in social terms. He's a tough guy. Possibly quite a brutal guy. Uh, When he's told to make them secure, he actually incarcerates Paul and Silas in the inner prison. It was the worst part of the prison they could have been put into. There was no natural light. It was cold and it was damp. And they're put in the stocks, which were designed to keep your feet apart at an uncomfortable angle. This wasn't a modern jail with its mod cons, its television and so on. This was a place of extreme discomfort. And he never even bothered washing their wounds. They had been flogged. Uh, Someone who was flogged could find themselves not only bleeding profusely, but the the bones could be protruding from the flesh at this point. 
And these men are taken and the, the blood's still flowing. The flesh is raw. Perhaps there's dirt uh, in the wounds. He doesn't even take the time to clean up the wounds of the men. They're put in the stocks. And he shuts the door. Now at this point, Paul and Silas haven't been able to speak the gospel to the jailer. He's not in the mood for that. Uh, he's uh, a tough guy. He's a man of duty. Uh, he, he wants to do his job well. That's what his life revolves around. Uh, but he can't help but take notice at what happens next. Because instead of uh, shouting and screaming, they begin to sing hymns. They're praising God in the prison. Now, this is all the more remarkable when you think of how uh, Middle Eastern folk respond uh, to a sense of injustice. If you see um, you know, television footage of Palestinians when there's been, say, a, a grenade attack on a Palestinian settlement, uh, they're a very volatile people. They're very expressive. Uh, you'll see them coming up to the cameras and shaking their their fists at the cameras. Uh, if there's a funeral, uh, there's a lot of wailing and, and uh, the emotions are allowed to, 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 to hang out. But instead of complaint, instead of, of cursing, we have singing. And this is so remarkable, we're told that the other prisoners are lugging in. They're listening to what's happening. I think that's so significant, isn't it? Before people are often ready to, to hear the, the good news that we have to share with them as Christians, they need to see uh, in our lives that the gospel has made a real impact. And one of the ways that people recognize that is the way by which Christians uh, cope with hardship. It's when life is sour that people see the difference that the gospel makes. It's when we're, we're up against it, when we're suffering, when we're ill, when we're disappointed. That's when people who are watching us sit up and take note that Jesus really does make a difference. That's what was going on at this point. And then just at this point when uh, they have got the attention of uh, those around them, God speaks and he speaks through the earthquake. There's this mighty earthquake comes and shakes the, the, the prison, shakes it at the foundations so that the prison doors are opened. Uh, the torches that light the, the, the jail are thrown to the ground, places in darkness. The chains that tie, bind them uh, to the walls are broken. Now, Notice how the jailer reacts to this crisis. He is on the point of committing suicide. He's on the point of committing suicide. He is devastated by this. Now, if you think psychologically why this should be, he's a man whose life revolves around his job. He has a really strong sense of duty. Probably a soldier, someone to whom a responsibility has been given, and he is devastated that he may have messed up. 
He cannot bear even facing a tribunal. He is ready to fall on his sword. The earthquake and all the things that happened uh, have made him uh, absolutely uh, terrified. And in the midst of all the turmoil, uh, just as he's about to take his life, uh, he hears the voice of Paul saying, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. They haven't run for it. Uh, The place had become an open prison all of a sudden, but they haven't moved. They're still there. Now, there's great irony here, isn't there? Because uh, the, the prisoners have turned out to be the ones who are free. Uh, they have a freedom that is so real that in prison they sing songs. They have a freedom that is so real that when the prison doors are, sh- are thrown open, they feel under no compulsion to leave. Uh, they know that they are in God's hands. They are in no hurry. They are totally free. But the jailer, on the other hand, he is a prisoner in another sense. He's a prisoner to his job. Uh, He, like many people, has made an idol of his work so that when his work goes wrong, he's absolutely shattered and considers suicide. An idol is known uh, by the hold that it has on us. If something is is over-important to us, when we are threatened by its loss, we are ridden by anxiety, uh, we are devastated... And in extreme cases, uh, we consider doing what the jailer considers here. He's shattered at the thought that he will lose face for having failed in his duty because the prisoners have escaped. And he shouts out in his desperation, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, it's a marvellous question. Marvellous question. Uh, It's a question that uh, we long for people to ask. It's a question which the Holy Spirit uh, causes people to ask. They realise that they are in a fix. That they are in danger. So long as they cling to the idol of their work, Or whatever it is they have placed before God. They have come under the judgment of God. And they need to be saved. They need to be freed. They need to be delivered. And the jailer is asking the right question. We trust, of course, that he's not asking what must I do in the sense of having to perform deeds to be saved. We trust that he wasn't anticipating that Paul would have said, well... Uh, Here are 50 things that you have to do and then you'll be saved. Because Paul says to him, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's all you have to do. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Remember last week uh, when we were talking about God closing doors, uh, we were thinking about the story of Spurgeon's conversion and how God closed the door on the way to the church that he had intended going to. Well, he came into this, this primitive Methodist church and uh, he got in and went under the gallery to try and keep out of view of the preacher. The preacher that day was a, 
a layman, he was uh, a shoemaker. Uh, we can imagine that because the regular preacher hadn't turned up, he was thrust to the, the fore, uh, didn't have a sermon prepared, and he took as his text that day, uh, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved, Isaiah 45, 26. And Spurgeon later on recalls uh, how it went that day. The man said, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Spurgeon says when he had managed to ring about ten minutes from his text, he noticed Spurgeon under the gallery and he fixed his eyes upon Spurgeon and he said, this young man, you look very miserable and you'll always be miserable until you obey my text. Well, that would have unnerved anyone, wouldn't it, to have the preacher actually speak directly to you when you thought that you were saved. And Spurgeon says it was just what he needed. I, was, I didn't take much notice of being pointed out. I was so possessed with that one thought. I'd been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. That is saving faith. Looking away from yourself, you look to Jesus for all that you need, for forgiveness, for righteousness. Without works, grace, the free gift of God. And that night, the jailer looked to Jesus and the jailer was saved. The chains on his life fell off. He was free and he showed his commitment, his new life, by his first act of true compassion, he washed the wounds of his captives. The thing he had neglected to do at the beginning, he did now. Jesus went about doing good, we're told. Jesus always showed compassion. And now the sign that this man is a true follower of Jesus is that something of Jesus is seen in his life also. And the whole family we're filled with joy, we're told, uh, because, uh, now it's interesting, the, the NIV uh, takes a bit of a liberty here. It's, it's, it's actually because he, that is the jailer, had come to believe in God. And in the morning, the magistrates and some of the court officials uh, send instructions that the men are to be released. Uh, they probably thought that uh, a good uh, sharp dose of Roman justice would put them uh, to rights. But actually at this point, Paul isn't ready to go quietly. He's not going to go out the back door and he asks for them to come. He says, we are Roman citizens. 
We should never have been flogged without a trial. Let them come to us and escort us out. Now, we ask the question, why does Paul, why does Paul wait until this point before uh, he asserts his rights as a Roman citizen? Well, on the one hand, he, he doesn't use his get-out-of-jail card earlier because there was work to do in that prison. Uh, he is a most free man. Uh, he knows that uh, he is in God's hands uh, and he had work to do. There was work to do in that prison that night. But now that uh, he, is, uh, he has finished uh, his time there, he knows that the community of believers in Philippi will be very vulnerable uh, to the kind of heavy-handed action that he's received. And so he fires a, a warning shot, as it were, across the bow of the authorities. He points out that they've behaved wrongly towards him as a Roman citizen. Uh, I believe his concern at this point is, is for the, the well-being of the, the fledgling church that they might be uh, safeguarded for some time uh, from the, the law. But then as we close, just uh, look at this lovely little picture at the end of the chapter. After prison, and Paul and Silas came out of the prison. They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Word brothers is often an inclusive word. I'm sure that uh, it means brothers and sisters. Uh, it certainly included Lydia. Did it include the slave girl? I'm sure it did. The jailer. The, the little family that are now uh, the church in Philippi. Would it in time include some of the prisoners once they had been released who had been overhearing Paul and Silas singing and then this remarkable conversation with the jailer. Who knows? But here's the point. This is a family drawn from all walks of life. Lydia, the entrepreneur, the boutique owner, the, the, the successful lady, the girl who had been at the bottom of the pile, the street girl, the exploited girl, the nobody now found her identity in Christ, a member of the family. And then this minor civil servant, the jailer. This man who had been so brutal, who had been tied up in his sense of duty, whose God had been his job. They're now part of the one family. There is no such thing as the Christian type. God chooses People for his family from all walks of life, from the poorest uh, to the most privileged, and is bringing them together from every background, every tribe and tongue, to be a family that reflects the Trinity, one in its diversity. What a marvelous story. What must I do to be saved? Believe. In the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the